Well, my name is Ryan Stevens. If you haven't met me, uh, please do after the service. I'll be hanging around here. Um, we're still in Hebrews. There's only 14 chapters in Hebrews, everyone. We're on chapter 12 today. Okay, so bear with me. I know we've been in Hebrews for a long time, but I'm really excited about what I get to share with you today, which is Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. So before we get, uh, oh man, I forgot this has a screw. Dave warned me that I wasn't going to have it at the right height, too. So before we get too into Hebrews 12, I think that it's worth taking a little bit of time to remember where we've been. So we're 12 chapters in with ordinations and Advent and topical sermons in between. So let's do a little, a little brief recap. Hebrews, from like the 10,000-foot view, is an author who we're assuming to be Paul, writing a letter to the Hebrew people after Jesus' death, kind of reminding them of the new covenant. He's, these, were, these were people that believed in the old covenant and had functioned under the old covenant. So he's telling them that as they're trying to slowly fade back into the old covenant and salvation by works and following the law, he's trying to tell them that no, there's no going back, that Jesus changed everything and there's only life under the new covenant. So when we dive into our text, the very first verse in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the first thing that the author does in Hebrews 12 is he establishes this imagery of a race. And when I think about the Old Covenant, I think about the Hebrews and what they, what they were used to following. They were used to following laws. I think about the weight the, sin, or the, the money, the time, the commitment it must have taken to, to try to follow, I'm going to move this away a little bit, that it must have taken to try to follow this old covenant, that it must have taken to try to follow this law. The money, the time, the commitment was enormous. It was a humongous burden. So for these people, when, when the author is telling them that, that Jesus changed everything, this idea of like, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, would have seemed like a sprint race. Right? It would have seemed like a burst of emotion followed by a finish line. But that's not what it was. And the author is trying to point that out in the very first verse. He's saying, you have to run with endurance the race that's set before us. He's pointing out that this is going to be anything but a sprint. This is going to be a marathon. This is going to take time, and it's going to take endurance. He's pointing out that Jesus wasn't the finish line, but Jesus was the starting line. Jesus gets you in the race so that you can run towards the finish line. So personally, when I think about endurance, the first thing I think about is endurance athletes. Uh, and I have a humongous respect for endurance athletes because I am not one of them. I think about marathon runners in particularly, and I think about um, the, tr the time and the training and the discipline of these people. They have incredible self-discipline. And no nobody wakes up on Saturday morning and says, I th yeah, I think I'll run 26 miles today, right? You train, and you train, and you train, and they don't just run, but rather they eat, and they sleep, and they breathe this stuff. They're the people that I'm driving behind on my way to work from Eagle River in the mornings that have 14 marathon bumper stickers on their back of their Subaru, right? It's always a Subaru. You know it is. They're, these are the people that are pushing the jogging strollers packed full of kids up the hills in front of my house in the rain in the summers. And they're big hills, okay? So these people have an, an incredible amount of commitment to what they're doing. And when you see someone training for a marathon, as it gets closer, 
they're, they tweak everything, right? They tweak their diet, they tweak their sleep habits, they tweak their run schedules. Everything is in preparation for this. So this is all for good reason. So as I was thinking about this and thinking about in marathons and endurance, I went and looked up the, the very first marathon. Why, why is it called a marathon? What is it? So in 490 BC, there was this dude named Phaedipides. And Phaedipides was fighting in the Battle of Marathon, which is where the Greeks fought the Persians. And as soon as the Greeks had defeated the Persians, uh, the commander of the Greek army told Phaedipides, who had just fought in the battle, had been like fighting in this big, this big battle. He says, hey man, run back to Athens and tell the assembly that, that we won. So Phaedipides, I, I picture this like young, really eager dude, runs back 26 miles, 385 yards from Marathon to Athens. He bursts into the assembly and he says, we won, and then he drops over dead. That's the story. So, so what's the point? Well, the point is, if you want to run a marathon, you don't decide that day. You train, and you train, and you train. And even then, if you train, it's not a cakewalk. So being as I didn't, I've never run a marathon, I googled what happens to your body during a marathon. Here's a list of a few things that can happen even if you're well trained. The first is called increased troponin levels. Troponin is a molecule in your body that is a signal to like the medical world that you're having a heart attack. When the troponin levels go up, you're having a heart attack. It's muscle damage from your heart. There's a condition called myoglobinuria. What that means is there's so much of your muscle is getting broken down from just being hammered constantly for hours that your urine actually appears bloody because your muscles are just wasting. You can shrink, literally. You shrink because the, the discs in between your vertebrae and your spine collapse down. Your toenails fall off. That was the worst one for me. I was like, my toenails? Come on. You get uh, diarrhea, stomach cramps, nausea, vomiting, dangerously low electrolyte levels. I could keep going, but I won't. I think you get the idea. So in, in my defense, number one, I've never ran a marathon before. No, number two is that I didn't fact check every single Google reference, okay? But what I'm trying to say here is that if you're going to commit to running the race in the first place, if you're going to sign up for it and you're going to show up and put the bib on, you better be committed to running because you are about to find out why they call it an endurance race. It's going to be a lot of things you're going to have to endure in that process. So the author in Hebrews is saying the same thing in Hebrews 12 to the Hebrew people. He's saying, look, you signed up. You chose to run the race. You were committed. Remember, you got your bib. Now you have to run it with endurance. And as I've been thinking about this, I've kind of come to the conclusion that Hebrews 12 is sort of the like, well, now what, of accepting Jesus. It gives us a little bit of an of a endurance prep manual. Perhaps it's where too many Christians fall away from the gospel after initially accepting Christ, right? Well, I accepted him, but, but now what? Things got hard. So as I've thought through this, I really think that there's three key components to endurance. Uh, those three components are perspective, discipline, and perseverance. And what's really cool is that each component builds on the last and incorporates the last. So the first of these is perspective. Let's dive into that. Uh, that's in Hebrews 12, 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he has received. So we already know from the first 11 chapters of Hebrews that the author, whoever he is, is a pretty good pep talker. Uh, He knows how to address things and he knows the order in which they need to be addressed. There's lots of therefores in Hebrews, which someone once told me, anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is the therefore therefore? He's building a case over and over and over throughout the whole chapter, and chapter 12 is no different. He starts with the feel-good component of endurance. He starts with perspective in 1 through 6. He's kind of like the guy at the starting line of a marathon. Like, everyone's trained, everyone knows what they're in for, but there's always got to be, like, that one peppy dude that's like, oh, man, it's, such a, it's so pretty outside today. Oh, this is going to be such an awesome race, and there's going to be lots of tables with water and that weird energy goo along the way. And, oh, I heard the course is more downhill than uphill this year. See, the point is that he's trying to get you pumped. He's trying to get you pumped up. He's trying to get you excited. He knows that if you have the right perspective that you're less likely to throw in the towel when the going gets tough. He wants to get your mind right before you start running and all of your toenails fall off. (laughs) You have to have the perspective that you can finish the race. No one's ever going to start a race that they don't think they can finish. It sets the tone. So perspective is this idea of what lies behind us, where are we at right now, what are our current circumstances, and then what lies ahead. So let's look at each of these. First, what lies behind? The first few uh, words of chapter 12 and the entire chapter 11 tells us that really what lies behind us is a great cloud of witnesses. Chapter 11, we skipped it intentionally. If you didn't know that, notice that. We went from 10 to 12. Uh, Chapter 12 or 11 is this assembly of a sort of dream team of like Old Testament dream team. Thank you, Mike. Um... So, in chapter 11, he establishes this dream team, which is not just the people that have run the race before, but it's the people that have run the race well before. And he says to the the people here, he says, can't you see that these people didn't have Jesus? All they had was the prophecy of Jesus. But you do have Jesus. So, That changes everything. The right perspective of what lies behind you changes changes everything. To kind of illustrate this point, picture the starting line of a marathon. Picture the whole crowd of the Boston Marathon is gathered to run, right? And everyone's pumped and everyone's excited and they're all like getting, getting excited. They line up at the line and the announcer says, on your marks, get set. Oh, by the way, no one has ever successfully completed this race before, go. Most people are going to be like, whoa, wait, what? And you're going to have like a few that are ultra competitive that are going to shoot out of the gates and they're like, oh, I'm going to be the first. But the problem is, is that later on in the race, when things get tough, they're going to start doubting. And they're going to say, oh, the side aches. That's why, that's why no one ever finished the race before. Or they're going to say, oh, another hill. I can't, I can't run up another hill. 
Now conversely, picture the starting line of the Boston Marathon with everyone that has ever run the race before in a grandstands behind the starting line. The first few rows are lined with the gold medalists from like the last hundred years or however long that marathon has been going. And it's just total mayhem. The crowd is just roaring for the people that are getting ready to start. When that gun goes off, when they, when they start the race, people shoot out of the blocks. They're excited. They know exactly what, what they're in for. Later on in the race, when they encounter some adversity, when they start, when their toenails start falling off, they're going to be thinking, someone has done this before. Because everything we do, we like to know someone has done this before. And the author of Hebrews does that in chapter 12. He says, look, you're not the first one to do this. Someone has done this before. Perspective of what lies behind is critical to running our race against sin. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever sin it is that, that you're really feeling drugged down by, you're not the first one to experience it. It's been defeated before. Someone else has dealt with it. And unlike our God, it can and has been defeated, and you have the grandstands of people behind you to prove it. The next component of perspective is that of our current circumstances. So I've already told you I ha I, I'm not a marathon runner. I don't know how to say this, but I work out. <laughs> Um, so, so because of that, I'm, I realize, I know my limitations. I'm much more likely to even, number one, show up for a workout. And number two, to achieve my goals of, of the workout if I know that I'm not doing it alone. Because I'm glad Lance isn't here, because he's a personal trainer for all those of you, you that don't know Lance. But if I'm left to my own devices, there's going to be a lot of days that I trade my workout for a handful of Rolos and some sweatpants. Okay. <laughs> It's just, the Rolos slow you down. You have to open each one. So see, there's, there's intentionality. Verse 1b and 2 in the NIV from Hebrews 12 says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. See, the author doesn't just point out what lies behind us. He points out the advantage of who's running the race right now. He says, they didn't have Jesus, but you do. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You don't have to run alone. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. I think that sometimes we have this mentality that Jesus is waiting for us at the finish line. That like Jesus like, could pep us up before we go, and it's like, great, you accepted me, now we'll see you, we'll see you later. But you can't fix your eyes what's on what's 26 miles ahead of you. You can't. He's running right alongside you. He lived here on the same earth we're sitting on right now. He felt tempted. He felt emotions, joy, anger, sadness, fear. He felt pain, shame. He was scorned, and he eventually died. Anything you can experience besides sin, Jesus has already experienced it. And he ran the race before. As a matter of fact, it tells us he's the perfecter of the race. He is the record holder of this race. By dying on the cross for the atonement of all sin for all time, he committed to run the race with each one of us for as long as it will take. He's not worried about our time. Every sin you've ever committed or will ever commit has already been paid for. And when you're struggling, at every single step, you can look to him. He's not going anywhere. He'll give you the encouragement and the strength you need. He's been there and he's done that. And as a matter of fact, he ran the race perfectly, perfectly, only to hang on a cross at the finish line so that when I straggle across the line at four and a half hours, in the eyes of the judge, I did too.
In verse 4, I love this. This is kind of a side note. But verse 4, man, it's like this passive-aggressive call-out. I, I had to assume he was writing this letter to a bunch of men because this is exactly what you do to men when you want to motivate them. This little passive-aggressive call-out, he says, in the, like, Ryan translation, he says, come on, man, you haven't even bled yet. And that, that'll, like, that makes me puff my chest out. Like, yeah, that's right. That's a sermon series. Prep it. You haven't even bled yet. So looking at the last component of perspective, uh, that's what lies ahead. What lies ahead of us? Maybe a better way to phrase it is, why are we even running this race in the first place? Verse 5 in the NIV says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? We are his sons. We're running this race of endurance, fighting against the sin of the world, all the while treading, trying to spread the gospel because we are our father's children. We are the sons and daughters of our father. He is our Abba. We run to him. We're made in his image. And no matter how long we've been in the world, we still bear a striking similarity to him. I know that I want to have unwavering perspective of what lies ahead. I'm running to my father and only to my father. I want his, the stamp on my life at every single step to be his, not my own, not that of the world. Because I know that relationship with him is the prize. That's what I'm running for, and it's a big prize at that. So now verse 5 and 6, we start to see the word discipline pop up a few times. So I think we see where this is going, and it wasn't all going to be sunshine and kittens the whole time. The last two components of endurance are tough, and sometimes they're tough to talk about. Verse 7 through 11 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Here comes the really not fun part. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this one was kind of tough for me, I'm going to be honest. This is like my sermon number two, right? So as I was, Greg passed along to me the sections that I could teach on, I saw a discipline pop up, and I was like, mm-mm, no. And my initial, like, my initial knee-jerk response was like, uh, no, no, God doesn't discipline me, and I'm his son. And I like, started like, questioning it. But as we define discipline as it relates to this concept, it, it paints a little bit of a different picture. I stumbled across a, an article on the Focus on the Family website while I was doing some research for this. And the article paired the word discipline next to the word punishment. And suddenly I was like, oh, discipline looks pretty good. See, punishment focuses on what you've already done. It focuses on a past misdeed or an offense with the purpose of inflicting a penalty. It provides perspective of what lies behind the past offense, and it provides perspective of where you are now, the penalty, but what it fails to do is provide any perspective for the future. 
Punishment is an act to be carried out by a hostile and frustrated parent, which is not our God, right? Punishment's not going to draw us in closer to him, and as a matter of fact, it's actually just going to do the opposite. It would just drive a stake of fear and guilt in between us and God. Discipline, however, is performed with the purpose of training for correction and maturity for the future. All three components of perspective are contained within discipline. It's performed out of love and concern. It's meant to redirect us away from something that's only going to cause hurt and pain, that's only going to distract us and draw us into closer relationship with God. In other words, we're disciplined during the race so that later on in the race, when we encounter the same thing, we will be more disciplined. You'll know how to navigate it. You'll know how to handle it. You'll be strong. You'll be trained. You'll be resilient. Most importantly is that discipline draws us in. It draws us in closer and gives us security in him and his promises. It reminds us whose we are so that we can refocus on why we were running the race in the first place. Now, that being said, I think it's important to recognize that sin did indeed make God angry and frustrated. And I think about like pre-old covenant, I think about Noah, the flood was some serious punishment, right? But again, Jesus was the turning point. Jesus walked perfectly for 33 years only to hang on a cross for it so that all God's anger and frustration directed towards sin could be paid for. So that instead of experiencing fear and guilt, as a result of punishment, we could experience security as a result of discipline. Jesus hung on the cross, to, and that changed God's punishment into God's discipline. Man, parents, this article is rich. If, you're, if you want to hear more about it, please come see me afterwards, because this thing convicted me a lot, a lot, about the way I discipline my kids. Okay, so you're saying, all right, Ryan, I'm a child of God, and as a result, he disciplines me from time to time. We already established this is to give me a little redirection. But what else do we need to know about it? Well, unfortunately, it is going to hurt. Verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Now, we like 11b. It's like, oh yeah, peaceful fruit of righteousness is being yielded. But no one wants to focus on 11a. No one wants to focus on the fact that although we understand the motive and the intention behind the discipline, it doesn't make it less painful at the time. John 15, 1 and 2 says, Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, while I was preparing for today, it was pointed out to me that the branch that's removed and the branch that is pruned feel the same sensation. They both feel the cut. The branch doesn't know. You see, the problem is, is that if we have the wrong definition of discipline as we approach this, if we, have, if we believe that we're being punished, then the pain you experience in the cut just might lead you to lose your perspective, which is the foundation to running with endurance, right? See, it's the intention behind the cut that really matters. A pruned vine is only pruned so that it can grow back thicker and bear more fruit. 
without pruning the ability of the branch to A, produce any fruit at all, produce more fruit, or B, bear the weight of the fruit that it's producing would be limited. And God would rather prune you through discipline than watch you either stop producing fruit or crumble under the weight of what you are producing. It's going to hurt, though. If God's dealing with you on something, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's physical, who knows? If you feel like you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord today, stop because he's trying to get your attention. He's speaking in that. So stop and pray and listen and discuss it with your brothers and your sisters. Most importantly, though, is to keep on running. Now, as I was preparing for this, this is the statement. If I want you to take one thing away from this sermon, if I was Pastor Greg right now, I'd say, watch this now. (laughs) Discipline is never intended to pull you out of the race. It's only intended to shape the course that is ahead of you. Let me say it again. Discipline was never intended to take you out of the race. It was only intended to shape your view, your perspective of the course in front of you. This brings us pretty clearly to our last component of endurance, which is perseverance. I love incorporating definitions because I think it provides a little bit of clarity as to what the, the word means and stuff. So as I looked the word, some definitions up for this sermon, I found the de- definition of perseverance is steadfast in, steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. Some synonyms, persistence, staying power. My personal favorite is indefatigability. (laughs) Purposefulness. Oh, I'm going to use it. You know it's coming. Purposefulness. This is where it really got crazy to me. Uh, The sentence that they use says, his perseverance with the technique illustrates his single-mindedness. Said differently. His perseverance with the technique or discipline illustrates his single-mindedness or perspective. Further simplified, his perseverance with the discipline illustrates his perspective. All three components are contained in perspective. So keep that definition in mind as we close out the text for today. Verse 12 through 17 says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. As we try to persevere through this race, there's a couple things that we have to do. First, you've got to quit running like this guy. All right? you got to quit running all slumped over and moping around, dragging your fists like a caveman, because, yeah, you're running, you're moving forward, technically. The problem is, your form is terrible. 
No one's looking at the guy running the race like this saying, I wish I could run like that guy. He looks like he's going to yak, but I, look, I wish I could run like that guy. You're making it way too hard on yourself. Running with bad form is actually more difficult from a physically speaking standpoint. Running with bad form is more difficult than running with good form. And really, when you think about a marathon, all the marathon is is a series of steps. Some might appear more difficult than others, but fundamentally, it's the same thing, time after time. It's your perspective and your discipline that's going to shape it. So keep on running. Put one foot in front of the other. You wanted to be in the race in the first place, remember? You signed up. You knew what came before you. You knew who's running with you. You know what you're running for. You've been refined and trained by discipline. Now own it. Second thing we have to do is make our paths as straight as possible. Now I know in a marathon you don't get to choose the course. They don't just say like, hey, run 26 miles and let us know what your time is. Right? They tell you where you're running. Same is true in life. We don't necessarily get to choose the course. But in a marathon, you don't run zigzags up, back and forth up the street. You pick a path and you run on it. Make your path straight. Pick a line. Make every effort to minimize distractions that are only intended to pull you off course or slow you down or wear you out because you're indefatigable. Remember? So the last thing the author says here, and the last thing that he says in, in Hebrews 12, and Jose, you can bring your team up if you're ready, is he says there's going to be hills. He says, okay, we have perspective. We know we're going to be disciplined. We're making our paths straight. But there are going to be hills. He addresses four of what I would consider to be the biggest hills that, we could address, that we're going to encounter, that everyone will encounter. The first is confrontation. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's saying here in his gentle pep talker sort of way, I know there are going to be people that you encounter that just kind of rub you the wrong way. And it might even happen at church. Oh, what? What he's saying is, Strive for peace with everyone, because if you don't, you're going to bring the whole crowd down with you. If you stumble and fall, you're going to bring the whole crowd down with you. The next hill is uh, what Stephen Furtick is the pastor of, uh, of Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. The next hill is what he would call the crap factory. I don't know. I think I can say that. I didn't check with Greg. I'm pretty sure. I said it, so now it's over. Um, so, we, so what is the crap factory? We all know a few crap factories. These are the people where we say, hey, man, I heard you got a raise at work. Congratulations. And they're like, oh, yeah, now I'm in the next tax bracket, and Uncle Sam's going to rob me. And you're like, really, dude? It's pessimism, really, is what we're talking about. Stop. Stop being a crap factory. Verse 15b says that no bitter root would spring up among you and cause trouble. Don't be a pessimism, or don't be a pessimist, because pessimism wrecks perspective. And if you allow your own pessimism to wreck your perspective or anyone else's perspective, it could have devastating consequences for you and everyone that's running with you. 
Third comes from verse 16. Really, really glad this is a family service. Third comes from verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral. And nobody wants to talk about this on Sunday, okay? But we have to. It's part of us, we're all human, and it's, gonna, it, what, it's what plays a huge role in people's downfall. Specifically, why it's called out as one of the top four distractions here, right? Don't let sex distract you from your goal. Don't let sex get you off course. It's toxic for you. If you're married, it can be very healthy. It can also be very toxic for your whole family. Cheating, lust, pornography. It's toxic. It's going to fix nothing. All it's going to do is drive wedges. So keep running and be single-minded. Lastly is Esau. Poor Esau. Esau got tricked by Jacob, right? Bible's pretty clear. Esau, Jacob, twin brothers. Jacob basically buys Esau's birthright for a bowl of bad bean soup. He tricks him into, into selling his safety and his security for the future for what seemed important now. What the author, author is saying here is don't take shortcuts. They never really lead where you think they're going to lead. There's only one course for each race. We're all running it. There's no way you can cheat it. There's no way you can make it shorter. There's no way you can make it easier. All you have to do is persevere. So you see, each piece builds on the last. You can't run without perspective. You can't even get in the race without perspective. Once you're in the race, you will encounter discipline. And discipline produces perseverance or steadfastness. So run with endurance the race that has been set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I promise you that it's going to be worth the medal at the finish line. I promise you. So here, here's where this becomes participatory. Here's where I give you all a chance to respond to this. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to dim the lights just a little bit, if someone's in control of that. I want to give everybody a chance to acknowledge where they're at in the race, because we're all running the same race, people. We're all family. We're all on the same track. We might be at different points. We might be experiencing different things, but we're all in the same game. I want a, cha I want a chance to partner with you guys in prayer. So if everyone could bow their heads, close their eyes, Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. We run to you. You are the prize we need. And thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, that he could run with us every step, God. Thank you for your faithfulness through the ages for the crowd of witnesses that stands behind us. Thank you for the stamp on us that is discipline that that discipline claims us as yours. And God, give us strength. So with every head bowed and every eyes, eye closed, if you're struggling with perseverance, let's start there. If you're running through some obstacles, but you're being distracted and your path is maybe anything but straight, with every head bowed and eye closed, would you slip up a hand? 
Father God, we see you. We want to run to you. We desire pure, real, unhindered relationship with you. Show us the course. Be the lamp unto our feet so that we can run with staying power, so that we can be single-minded. Go ahead and put your hands down. Next is discipline. If you feel like you're in the middle of some discipline, you slip a hand up. Be bold. God, it's your discipline that marks us as yours. It's not, dis it's not punishment. It's discipline. We see the intention, God. We want it to shape the course ahead of us but it hurts. And Father God, we love you. And just as you claim us as sons and daughters, we claim you as Father. Help us to embrace that discipline. We know that you're speaking and we're listening. Go ahead and put your hands down. Now last is perspective. Lots of components to perspective, but if you're struggling finding some perspective, why am I in this race in the first place? Who am I running with? Who's ran it before? If you're struggling with that, slip up a hand. Father God, <laughs> uh, it was made crystal clear to me this week that we tend to pile things on top of you. We can pile church services and we can pile broken relationships and we can pile everything on top of you, God, but at the base, at the bottom is you. You are what has been, you are what is, and you are what will always be. You are all the perspective that we need. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that you lavish on us even when we feel undeserving of it. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, who makes all of this possible. Just like the author of Hebrews says, God, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Amen. You can bring the lights back up a little bit. Jose's going to close us out with a song. I had initially planned on asking everyone that, that held up a hand to raise a hand, but I'm not going to do it. What I want you guys to know is that we're all on the same course. And you get to run with Jesus, but you also get to run with me. You get to run with Casey. You get to run with Travis. You get to run with Molly and with Sarah and with Nicole, with Dave and with Pam. We're all on the same course together. Embrace this family. Press into this family. And I promise this family will press back into you. We all want the same thing. We're all running for the same goal. So be bold enough to be part of the family. Be bold enough to serve. When, there needs, when we need service. Be bold enough to cry with somebody when they need to cry. Be bold enough to call people and ask how they're doing when God puts them on your heart. Be bold enough to be family together. Because that's really what 
what, what, that's the best we can do. Let's press into each other while we all press into God.